Please be seated. Well, this is the final recorded prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah. In, in that, the, the rest of what comes after chapter 44 uh, happens chronologically before this event. This is his final recorded event in the book of Jeremiah that he prophesies to the people, the Judeans, the people of Judah who had come to live in the land. We left them off last week taking Jeremiah and Baruch with them to come to the land because they were seeking safety and security. And now they've been here some time, years, we don't know how many, uh, probably less than 10, but more than five, in that we see that they've spread out and they have settled into the land. This is where Jeremiah would spend his sunset years in exile in Egypt. And so the Judeans settle, and in their settling, they begin to absorb some of the pagan practices. Now, some weren't new. The idolatry, we know uh, that they had already been practicing. This is why the judgment had come against them. Uh, But they seem to absorb more uh, as they come into this land. And so once again, God's people need a corrective voice, and Jeremiah is given a word from the Lord. One of the things that's striking to me as I read this passage, though, is how defiant the people are. They seem more defiant here now. It's, it's like it's grown. They seem more hardened, more determined in that the way that they speak back to Jeremiah and the way that they refuse. There's, there's no openness as before, even if it was a feigned openness in the previous chapter of them coming to the Lord saying, we'll do whatever the Lord says, even though they eventually said no. Here, there's none of that. There's just a harshness. And we see a mixture of things like this, these offerings given to the, 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 the queen of heaven. The excuse is that the wives weren't really wrong since their husbands didn't object. I think that's a very interesting use of you know, pagan practice and, and the law of God being mixed up all together. Not so different from our own day, though, as we've seen in passages leading up to this one, how we, we pick and choose what we want to follow. There are passages of Scripture that we read quickly over or or are dismissive of because we don't want to do what God's Word says. The temptation for us is just as similar as for them. This people, and we can be like them, had not learned from their history. They had forgotten their history, the history of their forefathers. And so, again, Jeremiah prophesies that the Lord will judge the people of Judah now as they're living in the land of Egypt. And he says, the ones who escape, though few as they may be, will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. The sin of idolatry, as we look at it in Scripture, and we've talked about this before, it's so often, because we we don't immediately connect with it, we think that it's some ancient thing, or something that's practiced in other countries, in other parts of the world, but not anything, I mean, there's, there's, there's no temple you know, around the corner in the neighborhood that we're tempted that all our neighbors are going to and offering uh, drink offerings as the people of Judah experienced here in the land of Egypt. But as John Calvin stated, our hearts are factories of idols. We do have idols in our own hearts. The things that we run to, the things that we put our confidence in, the things that we adore and have affection for more than we do the Lord. Even good things. Good things can easily become such objects of worship so that we can make idols out of church and ministry, family and traditions, jobs and finances, even food and exercise. Things that are right and good, things that are even necessary can actually become objects of our trust, of our love, our identity, 
and our purpose, of our hope, and our security, we need to remember how tricky our hearts can be. Well, I'm not saying this in an absolute sense. I've, I've said this before. It's, it, you know, there's, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is such a thing as legitimate fear, <clears throat> particularly of snakes, uh, that, 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 that are not sinful in these. Often, however, two things that can be indicative, and this is not exhaustive and this is not absolute, but often when anger and fear emerge in our lives, they are like little indicator lights on our dashboard that we don't, we don't need to ignore. They are often indicators of one of our idols being challenged. Anger and fear, when they erupt out of our lives, are an opportunity for us to consider what is it that I'm looking to for security or with affection or with hope or identity or whatever the issue may be. Because often, when those two emotions emerge in our lives, they are indicator lights. And again, while I'm not saying that exhaustively, I want us to see some insight into how we can look at the issue of idolatry and not see it as just some ancient thing that the people of Judah dealt with, but something that is very real and uh, for us today, a very real battle for us, a struggle for us. So even though the Queen of Heaven may not be an idol in our neighborhood temple for us to be tempted to bring offerings to, we have our own idols in our own hearts that we need to address. And it is only by the Spirit's heart work that we can discover this. There's no litmus test, unfortunately. There's no uh, you know, test strip that I can give you and say, yeah, you know, see, which, see which idols you have. I wish it were that easy. Uh, but it is, a, it is a work, a gracious work of God's Spirit to, as we grow in grace, peel back the layers and begin to show us what those idols are that reign in our hearts. So while this event may be interesting history, and it is, there are a number of things that are fascinating about the history that we read about in this, the history is here for us to learn from. And so we, you and I, must both be prayerfully you know, seeking the Spirit's work to not just simply look at this as something that happened, but something that we can learn from and grow. Now graciously, this passage, passage comes before us on a day, a Lord's Day, when we come to the Lord's table the table of remembrance, to eat of his supper. And so this gracious means is an opportunity to be prayerfully introspective of our own hearts. To come to the table is to consider all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And the result is that we worship him and him alone for our salvation, for our growth in grace, and for our ultimate safety and deliverance in the future. And so may we today be mindful, and may we learn to remember as the people of Judah are called to here, so that we will be certain whose word will stand in the end. Now looking in verse 1, the introduction of the message, we see that the people have come to Egypt and now they've spread out. He mentions a number of locations that they've moved to. They are now in these different parts of the land of Egypt. And while the, the, the remnant spread out, there were already Jews living in the land of Egypt. Uh, there's a number of uh, documents that, that uh, make this clear, the extra-biblical documents, historical documents that show this. And these, these Jews had come to the land for things like trade and business. Uh, but also, there were those who left the land of Egypt when they heard Babylon was coming. 
They're like, we're not staying for this. You know, we're going. And so they took their families down there. And the same thing from the, the world power of the Assyrians before that. And so Egypt had always been a place that, uh, you know, it, was, it seemed safe. The, it, all the threats seemed to be coming from the other direction, except, of course, when Egypt threatened Israel. But this was a place where there were Jews. And so it's understandable now that this remnant who comes in with Jeremiah and Baruch, that they would look to places where they would hear familiar sounds of their own language, where they would see signs and evidence of their own culture. And so they settled into these places where there were Jews already living. And Jeremiah now presents to the people a sermon at Pathros. And so a number of scholars believe that this was a sermon that he would have gone to each of these areas and delivered. This particular one was in Pathros. But that he would have gone and delivered the same or a similar sermon to these other areas. The sermon has three parts. It has a reflection back on the history of what had happened in Judah that they might remember. And then there is an indictment of their present situation, what they're currently doing. And then there's the promise of judgment in the future if they don't repent. And so the history of the sermon is in verses 2 to 6. The message from the Lord begins taking them back to recount their history, what they have uh, should have remembered from their past, that the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah lay in destruction even now. It was, it was in desolation. Why? Because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger, and that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers, verse 3 says. We've seen this throughout our study. This has been one of the many sin issues among the people of Judah that Jeremiah spoke against. Uh, He called them to repent from this practice of idolatry and worshiping pagan gods. But note that, that God's anger is provoked not simply because they have transgressed his standard, because they have also shattered the covenant that he made with them. There's all kinds of covenantal language in this indictment, as there has been throughout uh, Jeremiah's ministry. You remember God's words to Israel when he, he, he made early in their history, in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And so his anger is kindled against idolatry because he set his affections upon them first. God loves first, just as he's loved us first, just as he's called us out of darkness into light. He had called them out of this, the worldly kingdoms that they would be set apart, a kingdom of priests unto him, a holy nation. And so when we run after lesser things, putting our hopes in, setting our affections on, he is rightly offended. It is an affront to his holiness and it is a rejection of his covenant love. The Lord then reminds them of his love in repeatedly sending him, or sending them the prophets to call them to repentance. The Lord didn't just set his holy standard, but he was merciful and gracious. He was slow to judgment, uh, something that they misread, which we'll see in a minute. Uh, and, and he sent the prophets saying to them, do not do this abomination that I hate, verse 4. He said it very clear. He, he, he didn't mince words. He made it so that they could understand it. But the people of Judah didn't listen to the word of the Lord. They would not stop running after these worldly things. And so it was for this idolatry that the Lord had judged the nation of Judah, the people of Judah, that he had sent the Babylonians in. And now he calls this to their memory as he now brings an indictment 
against them for their current behavior in Egypt. Verses 7 to 10, the questions that he asks his people about their current way of living. And with each question, he's pushing back on what they are choosing to do, pushing back on their behavior as if to question their forgetfulness about their history. That is, do they not remember? Do they not realize? Has it been that long ago that you guys have already forgotten that what the fruit of these actions produces? I think the third question in verse 9 is incredibly condemning. The use of the word evil or wickedness, depending on your translation, five times. It's just hammering home. Uh, it, 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 should have, it should have jolted them, this indictment against them. He also focuses the indictment on the role of the wives in the idol worship. We've already seen that idolatry in Judah had become a family affair. We saw this in the temple sermon in chapter 7 where the whole family, including the kids, were out gathering kindling and wood to build fires to make offerings. And once again, we're reminded that dysfunction within families always leads to messes. In this case, it's the wives leading the effort and then turning around and blaming the husbands that they didn't object to it. And this is the same pattern that we see throughout history. This is not new to this time. It's not unusual in our own day. We can go all the way back again to the garden. What did Adam do when God called him out? It's this woman that you gave me. Right? We, we love to point fingers. We love to point and to blame. Man, I want to say here that we have a responsibility to lead well. And this includes not only saying no to sin, but saying yes to doing rightly or following God's commandments. But another aspect of leading is being able to hear, to be able to be confronted by your own sin. If you are unconfrontable by others, including your wife, you will easily end up like the Judeans here. Humility. In leadership, whether it's spiritual leadership, it's funny, we so easily apply this to the workplace. You can go hear secular teachers talk about humility and leadership and listening, and if you're not approachable and so forth, you'll fail as a leader. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I first heard it from Deming, you know, 30 years ago, and, and that was old already then. It's been going on for years that, that secular minds can see this, that humility is necessary, but this is taught throughout Scripture, and particularly Jesus' example of humility in his leadership. That means being willing and able to listen. That means being approachable. Obviously, Jesus didn't have to be approachable in the issue of sin, but he certainly was approachable in other means. And so I think the lesson here is that hard-hearted pride will insulate you from merciful confrontation that can lead you to repentance and growth. And that's exactly what the people were doing here. Jeremiah says they refused to humble themselves even to this day. They forgot the past. They're walking naively in the present. They should have known what the future would deliver. And yet they are blinded. And so he now foretells what the future will deliver in verses 11 to 14. See, behold, I will set my face against you for harm. The Lord says this to the people, and then he explains what this means. It's the sword. It's famine. It's pestilence. From the least to the greatest. In other words, the very thing that the people of Judah were so fearful of, the very thing that they ran from, even though God told them to stay, promising to protect them, they thought the sword, famine, and pestilence was going to come back and get them through Nebuchadnezzar. And so they ran in disobedience. And that very thing, just as Jeremiah told them them then, years before, It's going to follow you to the land of Egypt. And now he says that promise all over again. 
That's what's going to happen to you. The promise is so extensive that they shall not return except sun fugitives. In other words, very few will escape this act of judgment. Again, one would think, one would hope that upon hearing this, they would be shaken, that they would be um, kind of jolted again in hearing the reminder of their past and being presented with the present wickedness that they're wrapped up in, hearing the promise of sure judgment in the future. You would hope that they would hear this and repent but they would not return to the Lord. The people, after hearing Jeremiah's sermon, respond with defiance, and they say, we will not listen. We will not listen. They add, we're going to continue doing the same things that we've been doing, and we're going to fulfill the promises that we made to this queen of heaven. This is why I think so much of the covenantal language is used in God's love for them. Because if you think about it, God's saying, I've chosen you, not because you were the greatest, but because you were the least. I've set my affections upon you. Because I loved you, I chose you. And now you're loyal to this idol, this piece of wood that someone carved, that people pour drink offerings over. That's where their loyalty would lay. And then they offer kind of a spin on history, their own version of history saying that when they were practicing idolatry in Judah, we had plenty of food, we prospered, we saw no disaster. Here they were likely talking about the time before uh, Josiah brought in the reforms. But they said, once their parents stopped, we have lacked everything and been consumed by the sword and by famine. Additionally, the women again add that their husbands had not rejected, they hadn't objected, they had not not spoken out, so they're, they're in the clear, right? Yeah. Does correlation indicate causation? Well, in this case, no, it does not. Over and over, Jeremiah has reminded the people of God's patience with them. That's why Jeremiah was there. Because God loved them, he sent his prophet to warn them and to call them to repentance. He had not only sent Jeremiah, he had sent other prophets as well. And so what they perceived as causation, pagan practices leading to prosperity, were actually the times in which God was showing patience in judgment. And so this is a time for us to consider how how we do the same thing. Today, I think it often comes in the form of comparison. Envy is not a new sin, but I think it is in some ways more of a challenge in our own day, maybe because in part social media uh, makes this worse, but we're tempted to look around, we compare our lives to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, and we think that their prosperity is the result of God's favor. Let me say this clearly. The only measure of our conformity to God's will, of our pleasing Him, is keeping with His word. The only measure of our conformity is in keeping with His word. Our circumstances do not determine God's love toward us, but His redemption as revealed in Scripture. The neatness of our lives isn't necessarily an indicator of God's favor, but our keeping His commandments with bearing fruit. Our comfort and ease in this life are not guaranteed, nor are they proof we've done everything right. But only faith in Christ, lived out in obedience, is proof that we have been made righteous in Him. The Judeans in Egypt ought to have listened to the Word of God, but instead they made up their own version of history, They painted their own reality, and therefore they had a very distorted view of the future. 
When we get our eyes off of God's standard, when we refuse to, to accept his worldview, so to speak, the same thing happens in our lives. It distorts our reality, and that was what they were experiencing there. So Jeremiah now responds in verses uh, 20 to the end, and his response is both prophetic and pastoral. It corrects while pointing the people to the unending covenantal love of God. He points out their wickedness and asks, Did the Lord not remember? Did it not come to his mind? Both questions are rhetorical to get them to think, but to show that God not only sees their actions, he is mindful of people's hearts and minds, their intentions. Think of the prophet Samuel's words to the people. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Or think of Jesus' words spoken over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Even so, Jeremiah's words have the same pastoral tone. And following the questions, Jeremiah then states that the Lord could no longer bear the abominations of the people. Therefore, the past judgment has come upon the land. And it is for that very reason that the people are there in Egypt to this day. I mean, that's what he's saying to them. It's, it is because you made offerings, because you sinned against the Lord, did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and his statutes and in his testimonies, that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. You're here because of these very sins. And now you're going to repeat it all over again. You're going to walk in the same, the, the, the same direction. And now this judgment will again happen to them in Egypt. It will be against Egypt. They're going to, to have a sign, but it, it's going to be effect. It, God's sovereignly using this to discipline his own people. Jeremiah tells them that since they have made their vows, go, keep your vows. Verse 25, confirm your vows, perform your vows. This sarcastic mockery against the covenant people who are so bent on making promises to the queen of heaven. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the Lord then swears by my great name that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord lives, they will now receive sword, famine, and pestilence. This remnant, small in number, they will now know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Again, the heaviness of these words that should have should have been felt by the people, but the people of Judah would not relent. And so the Lord promises them the sign, the sign against the nation of Egypt, saying, just as sure as Zedekiah was uh, delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, so this Pharaoh Hophra would be conquered. He's not saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the agent. He's saying, as sure as that happened, look back, remember your history. This is going to happen here. And so we know that Pharaoh Hophra wasn't a foreign power that came in. It was one of his own fellow Egyptians that came in and, and uh, killed him, assassinated him in 568 B.C. So the people now, uh, as a result, were, were, there was a war and they, they, were, they were affected by all of these same things. But God used this, just as he did Nebuchadnezzar, to discipline his people. A sign given that, that as it has come to pass, the people would know, my work will surely stand against you for harm. This is the consequence of you walking in these ways. For us, the temptation isn't a temple. It's not offering drink offerings to, to some idol or some, some uh, pagan, pagan god. 
But the same type of temptation is there for us in the idolatry of our own hearts. Sin can blind us in our waywardness so that we doubt the goodness of God toward us. Like Judah, we can begin to think that we know best how to direct our lives, how to find security, how to discover prosperity. What is it that we run to for safety? The way that Judah fled to Egypt. And what are we tempted to put our trust the way they adopted the pagan practices in that land? Just as Jeremiah called the people to remember their history over and over in this and other sermons, we too are called to remember. The people thought they knew where hope and security were to be found, but isn't it ironic that they run back to the land of slavery? The very land that God had delivered them from, that he had promised and then delivered and then taken them out of and taken them to the promised land and blessed them there. They had forgotten all of this. They had forgotten the covenant promises of God to be their God, having made them his people. Today we come to this table of remembrance so that our forgetful hearts might be refreshed by the word of God that will stand. The voices in our world, even the voices in our own hearts, continually lure us to waywardness. But this table declares what God has done for us in Christ to call us back to what is true and what is sure. The meal that is spread before us speaks of our sinfulness, We're confronted with our sinfulness in the death of Jesus. That's why he died. He died for our sins. So we have all fallen short of the glory of God as we read this morning. None of us are innocent. We are all guilty and deserving of God's just judgment. And yet, in his mercy, he has caused his wrath to fall upon the sinless son so that his death became the atonement for our wicked ways, our sinful acts, the evil intentions of our hearts. This table declares complete forgiveness by faith in the one whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled for you and for me. And so this testimony, or this this table is a testimony of the gospel. It is a testimony for the lost that they might see, hear, and believe, repenting, trusting in Christ alone for what he's done. And it is a testimony to us who by faith are in Christ that our sins are forgiven and that we have been washed clean. So come. Come and remember. Come eat and proclaim, as we're fed by the Savior, that we might live unto Him. The table says to us all with clarity and with assurance that we are His if we have put our trust in Christ, and it boldly proclaims whose word will stand. In remembering, we are assured of His love and our redemption, In eating, we are nourished to bear fruit to his glory. And upon eating this meal and going, we are equipped to persevere into the end. So let us remember and let us not forget. His promise of redemption is sure and his word will stand. As the psalmist sang, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Let's pray.